Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. We're going to be back in Ephesians, and we're talking about everybody's favorite subject, which is submitting. (laughs) Submitting to one another, specifically. And uh, I'm going to warn you here at the beginning that we're going to do things a little bit differently. Next uh, three weeks are sort of covering a lot of the same material. And so we're sort of going to, I'm going to leave you a little bit on a cliffhanger this week. I'm just going to warn you in advance. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about husbands and wives at the end, but uh, we're going to spend a lot more time on that next week. So there will be a little bit of a cliffhanger today. Uh, We've been working through Ephesians slowly. Uh, We're taking the time to read this book with a fresh perspective. And today, like we've been doing, we're going to keep building on all the things that we have been building in the past few months. Recently, in the last couple weeks, we've been discussing how we no longer live like we lived before Christ. Uh, We can live in a way that can show other people the kingdom of God in advance of it being fully here. We've been calling that kingdom living. And when we live this way, when when we put on the new humanity, when we live this kingdom lifestyle, it's a vivid example of God's goodness and grace to everyone around us. Um, and again, we're, we're reading this letter uh, that was written to a people group halfway around the world 2,000 years ago in a completely different uh, uh, perspective from us, different ways of looking at the world. And so understanding that we're reading someone else's mail from 2,000 years ago, that's a difficult thing to do. And so especially when we think about the passages that we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks, uh, it's helpful that our perspective has been consistent this whole way through because then it doesn't look like I'm cherry-picking when I say, hey, when we think about husbands and wives, we need to think about how they would have thought about husbands and wives, stuff like that. So we're going to do the best that we can to understand the situation that they were in. We're going to think about what Paul's saying, why he's saying it, and then we're going to say, what can we do about it in our lives? And we're going to see that a lot of the same things that Paul dealing, was dealing with, we deal with the same things, but they're not from the same perspective. And so we'll be developing that concept in the next three weeks. But before we tackle our question for today, I want to briefly mention the four themes that we've been working through. Uh, The first one is that this is a community-oriented letter. It's not meant for a modern, individualistic, Western way of looking at the world. So we've been reading every you in the letter as y'all. The next thing that we've been looking at is new creation and the new order of things in Jesus. This idea of an apocalypse or a revelation of Jesus, how uh, encountering Jesus should change our lives and change how we live. And we've been walking very practically through that in the last couple of weeks. And when we do that, we see how God wants us to live. And we've been calling that like living the kingdom or understanding the kingdom of God language in Ephesians. Um, As we, we, we worked through the kingdom a couple of months ago, And one of the things that I said at that time was that there's kingdom language all over the New Testament if you know where to look. And we've been, the stuff we've been walking through the last couple of weeks, there's no no kingdom language here that's being used explicitly, but implicitly God is showing us how to live. And it's a radically different way than how most people lived 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. And so we have the same challenge before us today to live the kingdom, live a kingdom lifestyle. And it's radically different than what our culture would want us to do today as well. The third and fourth thing that we are talking about is unity in Christ. Uh, Jew and Gentile was, of course, how they mainly expressed it back then, but we can see it in other ways in our lives today. And then division, when we see division, when we encounter resistance, when we see uh, things that work in the world that lead to conflict and lead to war and lead to all these bad things, we know that we're dealing with the powers of the world. So 
Our question for today is, what does it mean to submit? Again, I know as Americans in the modern culture, that's not a word we usually like to talk about. So we're going to talk about it today. What does it mean to submit? Uh, so we're going to begin by reading the section for this week. And like I said, we're going to sort of read more this week. And then we're going to talk about verse 21. It's going to be one of our, our sort of highlighted points this week. We're going to read verses uh, 22 through 25 as well this week. But then we're going to come back to all those verses next week as well. So I'm going to sort of preview a little bit, but then we're going, to, we're going to talk mostly about husbands and wives next week. I'll just say that. So here we are, Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how y'all walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with y'all's heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Sorry, that's a little hard to choke out in our modern culture. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, now this is where I can really amp up the pressure here. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, so the first um, seven verses here that we were looking at this week, they mark a slight transition uh, from what we have been seeing in Ephesians. Uh, Paul layers uh, this content that we've been going through from the middle of chapter 4 all the way to what we're seeing right now. He's using different uh, contrasting statements of ways of looking at things. So you've got the old life versus the new life or the new creation. That's what Jerry worked through a couple weeks ago. The old way of living, the new way of living, right? The second way we looked at it, which was what we looked at last week, is we looked at darkness versus light. So he's, he used another metaphor here to talk about the same kind of stuff, darkness versus light. Well, now here he makes a transition in verse 15, and he's talking about not being unwise, but being wise. So he's talking about now foolishness versus wisdom. And so what we're going to see uh, this week is Paul is still concerned about what's coming out of our mouths. He's not done yet talking about what comes out of our mouths. Uh, he's still concerned, as he has been throughout, about proper worship and what proper worship looks like. And he's also, I think, what's in the back of his mind mo more than anything else with all of this is he's concerned with how our lives, especially our lives as Christians, you know, people know that we're Christians, how our lives affect those around us who have not yet come to Christ, um, and also those in the community. He, he, has, um, he wants unity within the community, and then he wants our lives to be an example to those people who are outside the church. So let's go back to verse 15 and 16. We'll read these again, and we'll work through our passage here. Verse 15, look carefully then how y'all walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
I'm going to be a little bit nerdy today. I'm going to point out uh, our verb tenses, and I have, um, I have a reason for that, which you won't find out until the very end. Uh, but uh, we are going to mention a couple nerdy things here as we go. The first thing here is look carefully is a command. This first verb here, look carefully, verse 15, is a command. So we can understand this as Paul saying, like, watch what you're doing. You know, watch what you're saying. Watch how you're living. And in his mind, he's saying, is it old or is it new? Is it darkness or is it light? Is it foolishness or is it wise? And the first way that he relates this to us is making the best use of time. Now, I'm going to speak for myself here for a second. When I have thought about this verse, especially when I was a kid reading this verse and growing up and not understanding how I could try to read this in the ancient context versus like the modern world around me, how many of you have thought about calendars or day timers in the context of this verse? Uh, yeah, especially those of you who are organized. Yep, I'm seeing the organized ones raising your hands. Yep, this is our organizing verse, right? Wrong. <laughs> this is a classic example of reading a text and doing the best that you can with your modern glasses on and not uh, necessarily understanding what he's talking about. Um, you know, I, I thought the same thing. I was like, yeah, you know, I shouldn't waste time. I should be organized. I should plan ahead. I should get a calendar. I should write things down. I should, you know... Make sure I make it to all my appointments or something like that. Um, but I want to ask the question, do you think that people had like printable calendars and day planners back 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, right? Now, I bet knowing, knowing humanity and knowing that there probably were like organized people that like love to be organized 2,000 years ago, I bet if you could go in a time machine and like hand them a day planner, there have been several people like super excited to get something <laughs> like that, right? Uh, they would have been really thrilled with that, but, um, but no, that's not what this is talking about. And I think uh, this is a classic example where there's so much more going on in the original language and the original context and the culture. Um, so in the Bible class on Ephesians, Tim Mackey points out that the verb translated here, making the best use in the ESV, is the word that actually literally means to redeem. And those of you who are familiar with the King James or memorize this verse in the King James, redeeming the time because the days are evil, uh, they, King James translates it literally using that word redeeming. Now, when we think about the word redeeming, uh, maybe we don't quite have this hyperlinked yet, as Tim Mackey would say, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to encourage you to start thinking about this uh, hyperlink this way, especially because I think we're going to be going here soon uh, in a future sermon series. But when you think about the word redeem, there is a place in the Bible where you should immediately think about, and that is the Exodus story. Because in the Exodus story, the people of Israel were in slavery, and then God redeems them. He buys them out of slavery in Egypt, and he, trans he translates them. He brings them into the promised land. And so uh, this word that gets used here and the, the similar word that gets used, redemption, throughout the New Testament, both of those words, the first time that they get used is in the context of the Exodus story, in the Septuagint of the Exodus story, the Greek translation of the Exodus story. So this concept of redemption, whenever we think about redeeming, even if it says something like redeeming the time, which we may not have like a, a perspective for quite yet, when that word redeem gets used, we should immediately think Exodus, we should think um, you know, buying something back from slavery. So again, you had... Uh, the children of Israel, during the Exodus, uh, they were living under the authority of an evil pagan government. Uh, they were forced to not worship God the way that they wanted to worship God. Um, they were persecuted. They were abused by the Egyptians. And then God brings them out. 
Um, so in Paul's mind, let's connect this with Paul's worldview. Uh, we use this uh, uh, example of the powers uh, about two or three months ago now, actually. So I just want to bring back this idea of powers again. You have all these different things that are powers. Uh, you have social structures, economic structures, political structures, and all these things, you know, these powers can be good, they can be evil, they can be neutral. Uh, but remember, the powers is just sort of like a catch-all for anything that can influence human behavior. And so it can be things like angels and demons, it can be laws, it can be presidents or Caesars, it can be lower-level authorities like governors or even like clerks and police officers. Um, there's all different ways of thinking about the powers. But what Paul is trying to get us uh, to think about here by using the term redeeming the time, um, we already saw earlier in Ephesians that when we are born into this world, how are we born into it? Are we born free or are we born into slavery? We're born into slavery, right? And so when we begin our existence, is our time free or is our time in slavery? Our time is under slavery. And so... Uh, the time is under captivity, we could think of it. So Tim Mackey points out that this verse, redeeming the time, could be better translated, liberate the time. Liberate the time because the days are evil. Um, so the idea here is, is that we have, we have this time that we have on this earth, and what are we doing with it? Are we uh, staying enslaved to the powers and what the powers want us to do and how the powers want us to live? Or are we redeeming the time? Are we liberating the time and using it in service to God's eternal kingdom? And here's a quote from Tim Mackey I thought was really great. He says, So we are the ones who get liberated by a power greater than ourselves. But as we now participate in the birth of the new creation in the midst of, these, of the evil days, we have some influence in how time can be liberated. You can liberate your time from its captivity to the current age. There's another way we can sort of think about this too. Tim talks about what he calls the incomplete gospel message. And the incomplete gospel message is the main reason why I need Christ, the main reason I need Christianity is because there is a day coming when I will be judged and I want to make it to the good place and not go to the bad place. Or I want to have eternal life and not have eternal death. And so in essence, all of our lives in that worldview is waiting for this one moment where we get the yes or we get the no, right? And so if you think about life that way, what's, where's the importance of your time here? There is no importance of your time here. It only matters whether you get the yes or you get the no, right? And so he says um, that our worldview instead should be that we're living in anticipation of this future kingdom. And he says that every day should be, quote, charged with that cosmic significance, end quote. So every day, every minute, every moment needs to be liberated from captivity to the powers of this world and submitted, in some sense, to God's kingdom purposes for this world in advance of the coming kingdom. So that's a little bit about, uh, about redeeming the time. <laughs> a little bit more than day planners, I think. <laughs> Let's keep reading verses 17 through 21. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with y'all's heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So again, I said we're going to be a little bit nerdy with these verb tenses. Um, in verse 17, do not be foolish is another command. Uh, the word understand what the will of the Lord is. That verb understand is a command. Uh, in verse 18, do not get drunk. That's a command. Uh, be filled with the Spirit. That's also a command. So you have four commands here. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Now every verb that follows in the next few verses, so you have addressing, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting. All five of those are ways, they are not commands. They are ways that we can practically live out the command to be filled with the Spirit. That's incredibly important. We're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that here in a second. So I want to talk about why does Paul admonish us specifically not to get drunk with wine? Why does he relate that to being filled with the Spirit? What's the connection that he's trying to make here? Uh, because some people have made the argument that, uh, well, if he says you can be drunk with the wine, maybe you can be drunk with the Spirit too. And I'm going to submit to you that that's not what I think is going on here. He's not encouraging getting drunk with the Spirit. He says be filled with the Spirit. So why does he contrast drink with wine? Well, I think there's two probably primary reasons. Uh, the first reason, as our good friends uh, Lynn Kohick, uh, who wrote the uh, New International Commentary on the New Testament, we've been quoting her extensively throughout this series, and Clint Arnold, who did the Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary, we've been quoting him a lot in the series as well, uh, they both point out that alcohol was a major part of the Ephesian pagan society. Um, there are several ways we can think about this. Uh, one is that they frequently had social gatherings where uh, you'd be invited to a party and there'd be a lot of alcohol and there'd be a lot of other things going on, okay? Uh, things that we talked about last week, sexual immorality and things like that, okay? And so you have these parties going on. And, and so that's part of what's going on here in the back of Paul's mind. Uh, the other thing is that um, their worship practices were even wrapped up in this. There were um, gods like Dionysus and Bacchus uh, who were worshipped by getting intoxicated with wine and then doing some of these other things as well. And so um, being drunk with wine was something that was uh, a part of their old lifestyle generally that needed to be addressed and reformed and changed as they came into uh, Christianity. Um, but it was also, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of here pointing out laboriously here, that it was also a part of their old worship practices. And Paul's really interested in worship practices here. Um, but he also ex expects those worship practices to permeate the rest of our lives, I think is what he's trying to get at here in these verses. So uh, the second thing I want to point out, so, so the first part was they've got this old way of looking at uh, drinking that's unhelpful, both in their you know, general lives and also their worship practices. Um, the, the second thing I think that he he reason why he uses this disconnect between getting drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, this contrast, is that both of these things have an active process, part of the process, and a passive part of the process. Um, and uh, being filled with the Spirit, that command there is a, it's like a passive command. It's like you're expecting the Spirit to do something to you. It's not like I'm actively doing something to like grab the Spirit and like force it into me or something, right? So when you think about alcohol, you have an active part in that process, right? You pick up the alcohol, you drink it. And if you drink too much of it, that's when alcohol starts exerting power or authority or control over you. It changes how you think. It changes how you act. It changes how you treat people in that moment, right? And so there's an active part where you do your part to bring on the alcohol. But at some point, the alcohol changes your brain chemistry and it leads you to do things that you might not normally do. 
And what Paul is pointing out here is similarly, the life of the Spirit does the same thing. There are things that we need to do. We need to read our Bibles. We need to be doing the things that God has told us to do. We need to be obeying the commandments that we know to obey, right? But as you live your life this way, as you put on the things of the Spirit, as you're doing stuff, are you doing that alone? No, because then what is God doing? He is working through the Spirit. He is changing your heart. He is helping you change these habits. You're not doing it alone. You're inviting the Spirit's presence in, and the Spirit is transforming you. So there's an active part of the process, and there's a passive part of the process. And the whole goal of this as Paul has already mentioned in a community sense in chapter 4, is that we are to grow up into a more fuller, complete representation of our Lord, Jesus. That's the goal. And I was thinking about this, I was reflecting on this this week, and I wanted to point out that there's similar language used in Romans 12 too, in a passage that many of us are familiar with. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, transformed there is a passive verb. It's another passive command. And renewal is not a verb. Renewal is a noun. So the idea in Romans 12 is very similar to what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 5. The idea is that the renewed mind is something that God can give you. God gives you a renewed mind. He does it as you do the things that you know to do, but the Spirit has to help us get there. We sort of passively receive that renewed mind. In other words, we don't really renew our minds in that sense. We do things we can do. We, we can put on the, the Bible. We can, we can pray with each other. We can, you know, we can encourage each other. We can do things like that. But at the end of the day, receiving that renewed mind is something that God does through the Spirit. And it's the same thing that he's saying here about being filled with the Spirit. When we live lives that are in obedience and we're, we're doing things, as we walk down that path, as we walk down this this life that, that God's laying out for us practically here in Ephesians, as we walk that way, we get help. <laughs> we get help. And we get filled more and more and more with the Spirit. God permeates more and more of our lives uh, in such a way that we do make good use of our time. Um, so all that to say, we do our part. We need the Spirit's help. Uh, and so there, there you go. Now let's talk about these subordinate verbs. They're there are five subordinate verbs to this idea of being filled with the Spirit. Paul lists five different things that we can do. Uh, let's read verse 19 again. It says, uh, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with y'all's heart. So there are three of the five verbs used here um, that all are part of being filled by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. And so, in the back of Paul's mind, remember, he has their worship practices in mind, their old ways of worship. They used to get drunk. They used to perform all sorts of sin as part of their regular life and as part of their worship practices. So he does have in mind uh, that this verse is correction to that. This is a way to correct that. So what does worship look like? It looks like singing, praising, and encouraging one another with your voices. And of course, we would assume that this would have happened in their weekly Christian gatherings in Ephesus. And I want to point out here, too, that when Paul does this, uh, this is a very Jewish way of thinking. I mean, uh, the Jews were very likely to, when they recited you know, what we call Old Testament passages, you know, Torah portions, when they would recite these Torah portions, they would not just recite them, they would sing them. They would put it to melody. They would, they would encourage one another with a recitation of Scripture through song. And that was such the heartbeat of, of Jewish worship throughout time. 
And so, of course, this would have happened, uh, I believe, in the meetings. The meetings would have encouraged this. But I do believe that Paul is not just thinking about the worship service here. He's also encouraging the church that their whole lives can be dedicated to encouraging others through these practices of worship and praise, giving thanks to God um, all, the, all throughout their lives. It doesn't have to just be on Sunday. It can be the rest of the week as well. And so three of our being filled with the Spirit uh, verbs, and I think this is important to point out that three of the five verbs that he uses are in the context being filled with the Spirit is about worship, it's about encouraging one another with our voices and through song. That's how important worship is to God and to our lives of being filled in the Spirit. Let's go to verse 20. Verse 20 says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And giving thanks is something we know from other parts of the Bible. It's one of those few things that's like always appropriate to do. It's always appropriate to be thankful, to give thanks to God for uh, in every situation. Now, I do want to point out here, though, that we, we do live in a fallen world. We live in a world influenced by the powers. I mean, Paul's been spilling lots of ink talking about the powers in this letter. So does he mean we should be thankful for the evil powers that are exerting themselves? No. In this, for everything, he's clearly exempting certain things, okay? Um, but we can still always be thankful to God for his goodness, mercy, and grace. Uh, Lynn Kohick, in her New International Commentary, had a very long, excellent quote about all of this. It was just too long to include today. But basically what she says is that Paul had in mind, in verse 20 here, the glorious gospel of Christ that he's been unpacking since, like, verse 3 of this letter— all the way through, that's a lot of things that he thinks we should be thankful for. That's, that's the first aspect of it. She says, even suffering, even his suffering might be included in this. He says, I'm a prisoner for your sake. He might be thankful for that. Why? Because he's being persecuted for righteousness sake. And that was something that, you know, was a, viewed as a good thing. Uh, but, but suffering just in general is not included here. If you're suffering because of the powers, if you're suffering because of the evil world, if you're suffering because of persecution that's not related to the gospel or anything like that, that's, there's nothing wholesome, good, you know, thankworthy and praiseworthy in that. This is all through the lens of spreading the gospel um, and living, living the way that God intended. And so, um, so suffering can be included as long as you're suffering for the gospel's sake, like Paul was. Um, but she said the key point is that, and I'm going to quote here, her briefly here, she says, uh, the key point is that, quote, God has the final word and that word is love, end quote. So, when, so just pointing out here that the, every, the for everything here doesn't mean literally for the powers that are evil and all that stuff, okay? So we're thankful for God's goodness, we're thankful for his mercy, his grace, knowing that we live in a fallen world, knowing that we live in a world that is... Uh, that is um, tricked and deceived by the powers, the evil powers. All right, now, what you've all been waiting for, verse 21. Let's read verses 21 through 25 again. Here we go. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, so verse 21, that verb submitting, 
is another participle. So it's another verb under that command of being filled by the Spirit. It's not a command. Submitting in verse 21 is not a command. Um, if you have a more literal version of the Bible that inserts words and gives you the italics, you'll see that the wives submit to your own husbands, that submit in verse 22, is not in the Greek text. It's implied or inferred from verse 21. And it's legitimately done. Okay, that's the way it should be done. And we do get submit again in verse 24 when it says wives should, should submit to their husbands and everything. That verb is there. But it's not a command in verse 24 either. The next command we get is in verse 25 when it says husbands love your wives. Now that's a command. We're going to spend more time on this next week, but I think there's, there's something to that there, that, that pattern. All right, so I have six things I want to say about submission today, and this is where we're going to camp out the rest of our time this morning. Um, the first thing is that submission is voluntary, which means that submission, when we think about submission, when I think about submission, uh, I think about wrestling, and I've got this beautiful slide here. Um, yes, this is what we think submission looks like in our, in our modern society. Uh, this is not what Paul's talking about. We, we do not have a husband here in purple pinning down his wife who's in green. That is, that, is, that, is not, that is not the picture that we should have. All right? So submission, submission in this context, what it means is to voluntarily set aside your honor and your status in order to serve someone else. So the way that Tim Mackey unpacks this in the Ephesians class is he thinks that we should think back to what Paul has been saying about gifting and grace um, in the earlier part of Ephesians. So we think about it that way. We, we've been given this amazing gift of grace in Christ. Uh, we've all been given the same extraordinary gift of grace. And because we've all received the same grace and mercy, we're all on the same level. We're all on the same level. And he says it explicitly in Galatians, there's no male or female, there's no slave or free, you know, we're all, there's no Jew or Gentile, we're all one in Christ. Um, so, so Paul sees the gospel and this gift of grace as a leveling factor. Now we have different uh, giftings, we have different callings, we have different offices and things that we do in a church community, but from a spiritual perspective, we are all equal and even. And so what he says about this is that if we're all on the same level, and remember that, you know, we think about this in our society and the differences, you know, we might think that there are small societal differences between male and female or between some of the different races and different things in our lives. And, and I will submit to you that, that there are things there, that, things that are unequally done in our culture and in our time where people are viewed as higher status or lower status, depending on uh, whether they're rich or poor or whatever the case might, whatever metric you want to use. There are ways that we analyze people and we bucket people and we have to avoid that in our own lives. But certainly culture, our context, does that as well, uh, where things get promoted or not promoted based on what, all these different factors. But I want to point out to you that back then it probably was worse. The vast majority of people in the Roman um, uh, society, m most of them were slaves. Many of them were slaves. And they, even when they got freed... Uh, they would always carry around that slave status with them. There was a, there was a barrier. There, they could only go so far upward mobility-wise. Um, male and female. I mean, the w women clearly couldn't own property in many parts of the Roman Empire, uh, except for under very strict conditions. Okay? So you have all these things going on that we think about when we read this text, but what we have to remember is that like, what they had was way worse. <laughs> 
the ways that they looked at honor and shame and the way that they organized societies into haves and have-nots, um, it, was, it, was, it was very difficult. And so what Paul is saying in the context of all this is, is that if you're in a community where people look at you and they say you're a have-not because you're this or you're that and, oh, you're a have because you have this and you have that, how can you all be one in Christ if that kind of analysis is, being going, is going on? If I'm unwilling to submit to someone just simply because they're a woman or just simply because they're poor or just simply because they're a Gentile and not a Jew, then I don't really believe that we're all one in Christ. So that's what Paul's getting at here. And from, an, from what we think about it, from an, we don't have an honor-shame society. There are modern honor-shame societies. Like, for example, in Japan, there's more of an honor-shame kind of environment. But if you think about it, too, in this, in, from the standpoint of it's not just what I do to the other, it's how I elevate myself, right? Well, I have this honor. I have this prestige. I'm a man. I'm a Jew. I'm rich. I'm, I'm hosting this fellowship. I'm hosting this Christian gathering. None of you could afford to eat here, but I'm feeding you all at the weekly Christian meal, right? So when Paul says you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the poor slave woman who's a Gentile? He's talking to everyone. And if he's talking to everyone, then he's talking mainly to the people who needed to hear this, which would have been the wealthy, rich, Jew, whatever, you know, men. Okay, He's mostly interested in, in addressing that problem. Tim Mackey says it this way. He says, I begin to lose the addiction to asserting my own honor and status over others. When I view mutual submission as a priority in the church, I lose the addiction of asserting my own honor and status over others. In other words, I don't wrestle them as we saw them. I don't force them to be like, you should think I'm important. I give that away. So submitting is actually the opposite of what we saw. It's giving up that. So this mindset allows us to view others as higher status than we view ourselves. We start to view others as higher status or equal status, however you want to view it, um, whatever the correction needs to be. And what does that allow us to do? When I view someone else as higher status, now do I have any qualms about serving them? No. All of a sudden, all the barriers just evaporate because now I recognize they're worthy to be served. I should serve them. So... That's the first thing. It's voluntary. It's setting aside honor and status. And certainly we see that in our society, but I think they definitely had a big issue with this in their society, even more than we do. Now, the second thing, this admonition to submit, we've already talked about it briefly. It's addressed to the whole community. And I always like to point out that I am not exempted. Leaders are not exempted. The elders in our church are not exempted. Certain genders are not accepted. He's not like, well, if you're a woman, you should submit. But if you're a man, you don't need to submit to everyone. That's not what he says. He says submit to everyone. And look, I get there are two scholarly views on this. Tim Mackey points out there are two scholarly views on this. Um, I agree with Tim Mackey. I think he's talking literally about everyone. There are people that think that it's, you know, there are, there are qualifications and blah, 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 blah. I, I humbly disagree with that. I think it's everyone. Everyone in the community is to be uh, submitting to one another in, in, in the appropriate context. Um, and I want to give you a biblical example of that. I've got a slide here that's called Vessels for the Tabernacle. This is from 16, either 45 or 46. Um, it's by Dutch artist Christoffel van Sikkim. And this is of Bezalel, who is a character mentioned in Exodus. 
Um, Bezalel was the man who was filled with the Spirit, and he set forth and um, sort of orchestrated the building of the tabernacle uh, when, the, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness before they made it to the promised land. And so this is uh, Bezalel working with a couple of the other artisans who are filled with the Spirit, and they're working on building the tabernacle. That's what this uh, slide is of. Now, Moses, we think about Moses. Moses, uh, top five prophet, Old Testament, right? Like he's, uh, he's uh, the lawgiver, right? Huge you know, implications for uh, Jewish pr- uh, faith, practice, worship for you know, thousands of years, right? Um, he is a strong type of Christ, right? Moses, the prophet, uh, who's going to come like me, Deuteronomy 18, and then, you know, Jesus, you know, calls himself the prophet, I think, at one point in the Gospel of John, which is a hearkening back to that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. Okay, so Moses is like huge figure, a huge deal, huge prophet, huge type of Christ, like towering figure in Judaism. Okay, obviously filled with the Spirit, obviously had a lot going on, right? Now, when they went to build the tabernacle, who was submitting to whom? Was Moses, was Bezalel submitting to Moses? Who was in charge of building the tabernacle? Bezalel was. Let me tell you a little bit more about Bezalel. This is cool. Bezalel was filled with the Spirit. It says it explicitly in, Ephesians, in Exodus 31, and it talks about the whole building process in Exodus 36 through 38. Here's something that's going to be cool and might trigger some thoughts for you. Guess what tribe Bezalel was from? He was from the tribe of Judah. So what we have here, okay, okay, here's the third thing. I'm not going to get into myself here. Who, who, what did he do? What did he do? He built what? The tabernacle, right? Now, who's building the temple now? Jesus. So what I'm submitting to you is, is that Bezalel is another type of Christ here in the Exodus narrative. And in the process of building that tabernacle, you have the bigger, more important, more powerful, whatever, by any metric, prophet, whatever, type of Christ, and he's submitting to the other one in this process. So if Moses can submit to Bezalel, I humbly submit to you that we can submit to one another. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened is the Spirit made sure they're on the same page. The Spirit is the one who made sure that everything was working the way that it should be working. So what I want to point out is this word, people will often say that this word submission does imply a hierarchy, and I'm going to agree with that. It does imply a hierarchy. In that culture at that time, this word would have been used to put people in their place. I agree with that. In that culture in that time, this word hupotasso was used to put people in their place. But Paul's not using it that way. Paul's using it in a surprising way. And what he's saying that should be very surprising to us is that depending on the situation, the hierarchy should change. In some situations, I submit to you. In some situations, you submit to me. And that goes for everyone in the community. And what, that, what seems to be radical today, again, I'm going to point out, is I think more, was more radical even back then. The third point that I want to make about submission is that the context here is out of reverence for Christ. That's in this particular verse, verse 21. And also it's related grammatically. And the reason why we were so nerdy on all these verb tenses is it's a subordinate concept to being filled with the Spirit. So if we think about that, is this, is this godly submission to one another ever going to be in the context of something that's wrong? If someone asks you to do something wrong, is there any way to make that work out here in Ephesians 5.21? No. 
So if someone asks you to submit to something that's wrong, they're making two mistakes. First, this text is not about enforcing submission, it's voluntary. And second, if you're asked to do something wrong, it isn't being filled with the Spirit. It isn't out of reverence for Christ. And as Paul will use in chapter 6, it isn't in the Lord. So to be explicit, if a parent asks a child to do something that is wrong, they should not obey. I'm not even going to say that they don't need to obey. I'm going to say they should not obey. If a husband asks a wife to do something that isn't right, she should not submit to that. If a pastor tells people in their congregation to do X or Y or Z that would be against what the Bible says about X or Y or Z, then they should fire the pastor. <laughs> you should not submit to that. And so the point here is, is that we learn to follow Jesus as individuals and we continue in that relationship by obeying the Lord. And God's never going to ask us to walk into a relationship with another person or a body of people where we, don't, we no longer follow Jesus, where that's still not the primary thing. And so that's the third point I want to make about submission. Fourth, we've got to be careful to read this text in its original cultural context. Uh, Paul is not speaking to us in a postmodern feminist environment. Uh, Paul is talking to a group of churches 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor. So we're going to dig deep into this next week. So I'm just going to sort of briefly mention it here. Uh, but how many ancient writers, show of hands, how many ancient writers uh, do we try to hold up to modern standards? Is anyone going around canceling Plato for what he says about women or Aristotle for what he said about women? Or we're going to read something from Josephus next week about what he said about women. Who wants to cancel these guys? Anyone? Takers? So then why do we want to cancel Paul? When Paul, we're going to see next week where Paul is in the context of the ancient world is like, it's unbelievable. It's completely different. Fifth, fifth point here for the wives out there. Like I said, I'm not going to answer all your questions about husbands and wives this week, but I did want to point out uh, a couple things here. First, fifth thing, husbands are actually commanded to love their wives. Wives are encouraged to submit. I think there's a good reason for that. We're going to unpack all that next week. I know I'm punting on that this week, but please be patient with me here. Um, we will get to that next week, I promise. But I want to point out that in the context of the ancient world, Paul has this like subordinate clause thing going on with this other command when he's talking to the wives like, hey, you should sort of do this. And then he turns to the husbands and he's like, he, he picks his voice up and he's like, you husbands, love your wives. Stop it. You know, stop doing this other stuff. So that's another clue uh, in this context that Paul's really trying to shake things up here. He's going to, as we're seeing next week, he's shaking things up in a, a non-anarchist way. He's shaking things up in a manageable way. And he has a very strong purpose for that, uh, which we'll unpack next week. Um, and I want to add here that this is about husbands and their wives specifically. This is not men and women generally in this context, verses 23 through 25. And so we're going to dig more into that next week too. The sixth thing, and perhaps the most important thing, is our greatest example of submitting to one another is who? It's Jesus. It's our Lord. He submitted himself to us through his death on the cross he taught during his earthly ministry this upside-down way of viewing leadership that's so radical and transformative that even like modern comp American companies are trying to learn about servant leadership and understand what's, the big, you know, what's going on here. This is, this is radical. It's transformative. And so when, we think about when you think about submitting, I know, it's like I said, it's, it can be triggering for people, but, but think about Jesus, and he submitted himself to us by getting on that cross. 
So what does this mean for our lives? Let's think like we have been through the four layers of interpretation. We've looked a little bit about what the text meant to them. How would they have applied it? Well, in the original context of Ephesians, uh, the original audience would have understood their need to put away foolishness related to their culture, their old worship practices, and to instead be filled with the Spirit. Being wise and being filled with the Spirit would mean spending their time in a way that promoted kingdom living. And that would have included uh, praise and worship, encouraging one another through praise and worship, both in the community and at home. It would have included giving thanks habitually, as we saw, and it would have included submitting to one another voluntarily, which would have been a radical suggestion in the ancient world to submit to one another. So what does that mean to us today? Well, we've been reflecting on old creation versus new creation, on darkness versus light, on foolishness versus wisdom these past three weeks. And this week, uh, we find the importance of seeing our lives, our lives today, as important for the work of God, individually and collectively. We too should understand that our time is valuable. Sure, we can waste it like others who don't know the gospel. We can waste our time, and I think all of us probably do waste our time some days to some degree, right? But our time is best spent when it's redeemed, when it's used in service of the kingdom of God. Our time in this life can have eternal significance. And we too can be filled with the Spirit the same way that they were, through praise and worship, both here and at home throughout the week, through thanksgiving, and through mutual submission. So next week, again, we're going to unpack more about the husband-wife relationship specifically and the greater context of what's going on in this portion of Ephesians more generally. But I'll leave you with this question. How can we build a community where we, quote, lose the addiction to asserting my own honor and status over others? Like Tim Mackey said. And where we really put the interests of others first so as to serve them in love. I want to close with this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He once said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? So I humbly submit to you, and that pun's fully intended, that the first step to answering this question is voluntary submission to one another and to those in the community around us. Uh, Understanding the gospel as uh, leveling the playing field And that our job in response to the gospel is to be so thankful for what God has done for us that we reach out in love and humility to serve those around us. I think that's really the point of what Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter 5. So let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for uh, your word, for the words that you had your servant Paul write down so many years ago. Father, what wisdom we're seeing uh, week after week Uh, Here in the letter to the Ephesians, we're so thankful for uh, your son, for Jesus, for his example of submission, for um, how he submitted to us in laying down his life on the cross, for his example of servant leadership throughout his ministry um, that still has never been matched, Father, and won't, won't be matched until he comes and he exhibits it in person in the kingdom. So, Father, we're, we're just honored and thrilled and humbled that you would have us uh, pick up that mantle 2,000 years later, that we can make the best use of our time, that we can serve your purposes, and that, Father, as we, as we make those intentional moves uh, through worship, through thanksgiving, through mutual submission, that you will continue to fill us more and more with your spirit, that you will continue to guide us more and more. So, Father, we're thankful for 
your faithfulness to do that, for your love and mercy and grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslou.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.